Hi, my name is Andrea Bumstead and I am a member at Restore Temecula. If you are new, we want to welcome you and thank you for tuning in. We believe the church is not an event, but a family that you belong to. So we would love the opportunity to connect with you. If you want to learn more about our church or if we can help in any way, please visit our website at www.RestoreTemecula.com and click on Contact. We also have a mobile app with resources, including our Sunday messages, information about upcoming events, and other ways to connect. You can download our app on the Apple or Android App Store. With all of that said, we hope you enjoy the message. This morning, my name is Herrick, I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. This morning, I'm going to continue uh, with our series called The King and His Kingdom. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are in a really uh, remarkable part of the Gospel. It's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his famous teaching. There was, he was speaking in a time and place where there was a ton of religious activity. People were busy for God. Uh, there, was, there were sacrifices happening at the temple. People were getting together to pray. People were doing a lot of stuff for God in his name. It was, God's people were very busy. Uh, here's the thing, though. Just because there is busyness and activity, it doesn't mean that everything's okay. In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus does is, is he, he goes right for the jugular, and he's like, he blows the lid off the thing. Is that a phrase? I might have just made up a phrase. He takes the, the, the cover off so that we can really see what's going on underneath the surface. Underneath the surface, there, were, there was anger, there was lust, uh, there was hypocrisy, there was revenge, there was all these things that actually fracture humanity happening. And it was rampant in the community. And so even though everything looked on the outside, like there's a lot going on that's good, Jesus shows us like everything can be busy, but not actually okay. And so this morning we're going to continue and we're going to tackle, I think, one of the biggest challenges that we face as we seek to, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you are his representative in the world. And collectively, we are his representatives in the world. If you are not, I want to welcome you. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm assuming you're here to learn about what this means. And, um, and today we're going to talk about something that I think has really backfired on the church because we've not taken this teaching seriously. And so if you're here and you've been burned by the church and you've been hurt by it or you have a lot of questions, you see, all you see is like hypocrisy and lies, Jesus saw it too. And he wasn't okay with it. So come and join us. Hang out with us this morning. Let's learn together about Jesus and his ways. And before we do, let's pray. If you'll join me, if you'll pray for me. Uh, Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you for your son, your son who loves us and who gave up his life for us, your son who tells us the truth about ourselves so that we might be set free, your son who loved this world to the very end, even though it cost him his life, and that he was raised so that this world might be raised to new life and all the people in it. Thank you that you love us and care about us. Thank you that you know better. So often I feel like I know better, but the truth is you know better. Thank you that you're going to teach us today from your word. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. About uh, 10 years ago, my, my grandma, my abuela, uh, was, I think, in entering kind of like her 90s, and she was starting to really slow down. She was, uh, my grandfather had died several years before, my uncle, my dad's brother had died as well, so she was on her own. And uh, at that point, we, we needed something, we needed someone, we needed help for her. She could no longer kind of take care of herself. She was pretty independent, real go-getter, like took care of herself for many years, but there came a point in time when she was no longer able to do that. And so we needed to figure out like a caretaker type situation. We live... I lived then and still do in the United States. My grandmother lived in Puerto Rico, which is where I'm from. My, my parents were not living in Puerto Rico at the time. So we needed somebody on the ground that could take care of my grandma and help her. So uh, as we kind of started thinking about it, we've, we identified a person that we thought would be a wonderful caretaker, uh, a relative, someone who had married into the family, who had been taking care of uh, elderly people for a while, including her own 
mother before she died. And so for a while, it seemed like, like a fantastic solution, sort of like we have family members who are taking, family taking care of family. And, and there's a sense of like trust. We can trust this person and we can rely on this person. And um, over the course of time, though, it became clear that not all was well. And we had no idea like how serious the situation was until much, much later. Uh, my, my dad kind of pieced together that my, my grandma, she had saved up. She'd been really good with her, with her money. She didn't have a lot you know, over the years, but man, she had saved what she had. She was very diligent, very careful. And so she had um, a decent amount of savings. And as my dad started to kind of look at the numbers and look at the books, he realized that there were some strange transactions happening. And to make a long story short, um, this relative of mine had been taking money out of my grandma's account, not using it for her, but using it. I don't know the whole story. I'm assuming that it started off with like, I'll just borrow because I'm, I'm in need. And then eventually it became like, I'm, I, I'm borrowing so much that I can no longer repay it without like making that explicit or clear. And so eventually, kind of like in a desperation, started going, this relative started going to the casino to try to win it back, which if you, if you don't know, don't do that. It's, it's not, odds are not in your favor. Um, they're, the casinos might as well be like the Hunger Games. Like, may the odds ever be in your favor because they never will be. And you're going to die if you're here too much, you know, kind of thing. So that was a joke. Didn't really land. It's cool. I'm going to keep trying, though. But yeah, it was really, I guess, I guess you're not laughing because this is serious, right? It, it was a serious situation. It's, it's many years in the past now, so um, I'm not... We've moved kind of through this stuff, but the truth came out. There was a moment where the truth came out, and then like when we went back to see my grandma's house, like my grandfather had traveled. Uh, he had traveled kind of like at the beginning, kind of crazy, at the beginning of international air travel. Uh, he, he did it. Like he got on 707s or whatever the old planes were, and he went to Paris, and he went to all these different places. Never took my grandma, though. But... <laughs> Took his friends. Um, it's cool. Love you, abuelo. <clears throat> but uh, there was all of this like cool, beautiful artwork and stuff, and different things that he had he had brought back. And when my parents re-entered the house, which is where my grandma had been staying, where my relative had been staying with her, there was nothing left. It had all been sold off. Um, so, why am I telling you this? A bit of a downer to start with. Well, we're going to talk about something today that's pretty serious. And we're going to talk about lying, misrepresenting the truth and manipulation with our words. The, the reason this is so serious and the reason Jesus talks about it is because lies destroy relationships. And Jesus cares deeply about relationships. In today's text, we see that Jesus took, took it really seriously because he cares about our world. He wants our world and our, us as people and our world to look like what he intended it to be in the beginning. He desired that there'd be a community of believers that would be a taste of the kingdom. So he had to address lying, among many other things, as something that mars our humanity. So turn with me over to John 5, 33 to 37. Just four verses, pretty simple verses this morning. If you have a Bible, John 5. John 5. We're in Matthew. I was say, man. Don't go to John. All right, the first lie of the morning. We have to define lying a little more tightly than that. Okay, um, let's call the mistake. Matthew 5, just follow this, whatever, just follow the screen. Tell the truth, tell the truth, that's what it says in my Bible. Uh, so here's, this is Jesus, and he's continuing through the Sermon on the Mount, and he says these words. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep the, your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all. So this was something that was permitted in the Old Testament, and he's saying, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head, because you can't make a single hair white or black, or as I'm learning, you can't keep a single hair on your head. <laughs> 37, but let your yes mean yes, and your no, no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Woof. Okay, and you're, this might be a little bit hard. I guess I've been sitting with it all week, so it makes more sense to me than it probably does to you. What does it matter? Oath-taking, usually we're not, we're not swearing by Jerusalem. We're not swearing by heaven or by earth. Like, what's the, what's the deal? Like, what's actually going on? Well, I'm going to let somebody much smarter than you tell you. Uh, can we get quote number one up here, uh, please? 
up on the screen. So what's happening here? This is from uh, Daryl Bach and David Turner. It's a biblical commentary that I thought was really helpful. So Matthew 5.33. It's not a direct quote of an Old Testament passage, but it's kind of a summary or a gist of relevant passages. Okay? So this is, this is oath-taking and truth-telling and all that stuff kind of summarized. Much like the statement about murderers being liable to judgment in Matthew 5.21. So in the Old Testament, here's the key. One was permitted to take a vow or an oath as long as irreverence and falsehood were not involved, as long as you weren't fudging. Vows were intended to ensure one's resolve to follow through on an obligation. With this vow, make sure that I actually do what I say. But ironically, vows resulted in there being two classes of utterances, the one with the vow committing the speaker to truth and the one without the vow implying no such commitment. Okay, is this, is this starting to... Makes sense? There's a hierarchy of truth that's happening here. By Jesus' time, certain Pharisees had perverted the practice of vows by subtle, casuistic distinctions, really clever fudging. Jesus' response is to forbid what the Old Testament permits, but the truth is that the goal of both the Old Testament permission, the truth is the goal of both the Old Testament prohibition, permission and Jesus' prohibition. We got through that. Oh, there's more. So while Jesus may be, thank you, Jesus may, be, may have be said to have contradicted the letter of the law here, he did so in order to uphold its spirit. Things got so tangled and messy and jacked up that he had to clear, he had to kind of like clear the deck. And so he upheld the commandment really ultimately against false witness. Vows are superfluous. You don't need to make vows if truth is what you're about. If you're a truthful person, you don't need vows. So what's, what's happening here? I want you to imagine for a moment, uh, a professional athlete is on the stand. They have been uh, accused of taking performance-enhancing drugs. And since those are illegal, they, they wanted to put them on, on, the, on the stands. And they say, I've never used performance-enhancing drugs. Turns out, actually, we've got drug tests that show that you do. Right? So can you imagine that? It's not that hard to imagine. Because this stuff happens all the time. It's called perjury, lying under oath. After swe- I, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Yes. So what ends up happening, basically, if, I, if, if we were to, were to take this as a parallel, parallel analogy, is that somebody like said, I'll tell the truth, but in reality, they were crossing their fingers behind their back. Right? And so imagine uh, the district attorney calls a press conference, and it's like, late breaking news a stunning development in this perjury case. And the district attorney says, well, I don't know how to say this, but we've had to dismiss charges because um, this athlete was crossing his fingers. So, (laughs) case dismissed. Also, I thought you should know that I hate my job and I quit. It's like, come on, really? That's basically what's happening. It's like it's an elaborate form of crossing your fingers behind your back. Uh, maybe you did that as a kid, maybe you did it, maybe you knew that's a thing, maybe you didn't know that's a thing, but apparently that's a thing that you can do. <laughs> okay? What's the point? What's the point? Uh, clever fudging is still fudging. Or not so clever, this is kind of dumb. But technicalities, right? Still fudging. Number one, point number one. Point number one, saying one thing and meaning another is sinful. Saying one thing and meaning another is sinful. If you're taking notes, saying one thing and meaning another is sinful. I guarantee you there's two of you in here who are thinking of the exceptions. You don't have to raise your hand. I know you're here. I know you've read about the Hebrew midwives who had to lie about their, the Hebrew women giving birth quickly to Pharaoh because Pharaoh wanted to kill all the, all the Hebrew children, or at least the boys. Yeah, there's exceptions, very rare, in very unusual circumstances. So what Jesus is addressing is sort of like that everyday lying for our own advancement, for our own gain. It's like using our words to manipulate and misrepresent the truth, to get what we want, to have selfish desires met. That's what he's addressing. And if we say one thing and mean another, that's sinful. That's sinful. 
Got another quote. Why does this matter? Quote number two kind of explains why this, uh, this matters, why this might be sinful. The context, this is from the New Testament use of the Old Testament, D.A. Carson. The concept, context in Matthew 5, 34 to 36 explains the kind of swearing that Jesus is prohibiting, that in, that in which at least some of the Jewish leaders were caught up, establishing an elaborate casuistry, clever but unsounding, unsound reasoning, clever fudging, of which kinds of oaths were binding and which were not. So that, and here's the key, it became difficult to ever take certain people at their word. It became difficult to ever take certain people at their word. Lies destroy trust in relationships. That's, that's ultimately what was at stake here. Imagine if you're in a situation where you don't know if the person you're talking to, the person you're relying on is telling you the truth. How far can you really go? It's a mess. It's a cruel mess. And Jesus cares, so he's, he's teaching about it. So what drives, what drives us? And this is a human problem. This is not like just certain people. This is a human problem. We're not like smarter than the ancient Jews were. No, we're, we haven't evolved. Maybe like we're a little more sophisticated technologically. Actually think they were probably, whatever. Doesn't matter. I want to give you four big reasons why we lie. Four things that are happening underneath the surface that we probably don't even know. They're happening so subtly, so quietly, that it's driving this forward without us even knowing it. Some of you will be familiar with this. This is the four idols. The four idols. Okay, an idol is something that we want too much. It's an over-desire for something. And so I want to just quickly walk you through the four idols, and together, actually, this is going to be interactive, so be ready to participate. If you have an idea or a thought, I'd love to hear it. So idol number one is a power idol. If you could throw that. Oh, you already got it. Fantastic. I'm going to read this quickly. Some of you guys have seen this before. Some of you have not. But a power idol, again, this, we're talking about over-desires, desires that lead us into certain behaviors, which would include, can include lying, among other things. A power idol is an over-desire for significance through success, winning, and an influence. This person may feel the need to be right, the best, competent, outstanding, special. In fact, uh, you may hear those whose go-to is power assert how good they are. But deep underneath, there's a fear of humiliation and meaninglessness. There's a desire to avoid feeling insignificant. Thank you, Redeemer Counseling Services. Uh, do you ever fudge to avoid looking bad? Me either. Hmm? What sorts of lies might, might someone be driven to if they are, if their go-to is power? I worked at a, a law firm for many years. I wasn't an attorney, but I worked at a law firm for many years, and I saw all kinds of shenanigans, corporate shenanigans and otherwise. And one of the ones, and this is all public information, um, that, that for whatever reason I remember, actually I know why I remember it, it's because I spent a lot of hours on it. Yeah, they didn't go, whatever. Not great memories for me personally. But I remember this, this specific company, a company called Diebold. Okay, they're a manufacturer that um, actually had to pay $25 million to settle charges with the Securities and Exchange Commission, which is a regular, government regulator, because they had fraudulently, they had, had used fraudulent accounting to inflate earnings. So, in other words, they were charged the company and three former executives with basically like receiving flash reports. So on a daily basis or a near daily basis, they got actual earnings compared to like the analysts' earnings. And if you don't know, analysts will essentially, they'll, they'll, look, at the comp they'll look at companies and they'll assign a stock price to it. So if they think Diebold is worth $40, they'll put out an earnings report or an analyst report saying, Diebold is worth $40 a share. And that could affect significantly the stock price. Also, sometimes people's benefits are connected to those, um, to those numbers. And so for them, it was a huge deal to actually make sure that they met analyst forecasts. So what did they do? When they were behind on analyst forecasts, they actually came up with lists of ways to close the gap between financial results and forecasts. Now, that's not necessarily wrong, but... Many of those opportunities were fraudulent accounting practices, essentially, so that they could pull revenue in 
to this quarter, even though we know we're not going to actually get that. So they inflated performance. And so Diebold, essentially, they borrowed from all these different chapters of deceptive accounting, that's what the regulators said, to fraudulently boost the company's bottom line. What happens when that sort of deception takes place? What do you think happened to that company? What did the stock price actually end up doing? Yeah. So here's the thing with, with idols. They always promise much and never deliver. The very thing that they were afraid of happening happened. Do you ever fudge to avoid looking bad? It could come from a power idol, an over-desire for success. Okay, let's go to number two. Control. What's the definition of control? This would be an over-desire for certainty. That's the key word, certainty, that exhibits through control of self, environment, and other people. It's not necessarily like a dominance thing, but it more by control over doing something, working hard, being self-disciplined, upholding standards. So they may seek certainty and may seek to be self-sufficient. Now, underneath that, there's some deep fears happening. There's obviously the fear of uncertainty, but there's also a lot of times like a fear of being criticized that's driving things. Or may want to avoid feelings of uselessness, irrelevance, I don't matter, which may lead to a sense of being invisible, non-existent. It goes deep when you unwind it. Thank you, Redeemer. Do you ever fudge to secure an outcome? Have you ever tempted to fudge on something? Maybe a creative lie to get what you want. Now for me, the um, example par excellence is Mother Gothel from Tangled. Any um, Pixar fans in the house? She's got to do whatever she's got to do to keep Rapunzel in that tower at all costs. The lie about the world, about danger itself, about Rapunzel's abilities, anything and everything to prevent an outcome she can't handle, which is losing this girl, which means that she would lose herself. Do you ever fudge to secure an outcome? Me either. Number three, approval. Oh, I almost tripped. It's just staggering. Definition, over-desire to please, to get affirmation and acceptance through relationships by helping and meeting others' needs and desires. There's a need to get positive feedback to provide services so that others need us. And this might lead to a susceptibility of codependency. And deep down underneath that is rejection, fear of rejection, avoiding conflict, and struggling with Cowardice. How might someone who wants to avoid rejection or conflict fudge? Oh, let me count the ways. For me, and by the way, this stuff is, is, is impacting me as I thought about this. Often it looks like saying yes without a plan or thought into how I'd actually follow through. That's how I fudge. It doesn't feel as bad, but at the end of the day, what does it matter? It's fudging is fudging. So it can look like exaggerations. Sometimes people who struggle with this just exaggerate all the time. It could be downplaying, minimizing, hiding. It could be overpromising, saying everything is fine when, when nothing is fine, ghosting. All these different ways, right? Um, I remember once, not my finest moment, when I was... I don't know. I was a teenager, I think. Uh, we were having a family reunion, and there was one of those kind of like bunch of cousins. I didn't live. It was a family reunion in Puerto Rico, and I was coming in from California. So these were uh, cousins of mine, family that I don't see often at all. So we got together, and this tends to happen. Like, you know, one of the cousins who's younger gets in the, you know, we're playing basketball, and they grab the ball and run off. Or they, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Some of you were that cousin. <clears throat> Uh, which is cool, but uh, actually it's not cool. It's not cool. And here's the point. Uh, what my uncle, whose, whose son, my cousin, what, he saw that happen. He was like, hey, are you okay with this? Like, tell me the truth. Are you okay with that? And I was like, yes. I wasn't. I wasn't. Internally fuming. But externally, like, I wanted to avoid conflict. I just couldn't handle Telling the truth, because that would mean, this was also a cousin who used to, when he was three, he used to chase me with a little piano and would smash me with it. He had some stuff that he had to work through. He's doing better now. 
So there was like a self-protection element, you know, to this as well. But there was like, a, I just want to keep the peace at all costs. And the desire to please is powerful. And I have a feeling that if we knew like how deep this runs for us, we would be undone. <laughs> or at the very least, we wouldn't take ourselves as seriously. We'd be quicker to apologize, quicker to repent. The desire to please is powerful. Last one, comfort. The California idol. The Southern California flavor of idolatry. If power is like New York, this is us, baby. Overdesire for avoidance of pain and stress by seeking beach and booze and whatever. Responsi- freedom from responsibility, expectations, anything that might feel unpleasant. By seeking immediate gratification through addictive behaviors, through numbing, escaping, this would be, yeah, just fill in the blank with addiction. It could be all kinds of stuff. Deep down, there's a fear of stress and demands seek, and may seek privacy, right? How might someone who fears stress and demands and loves privacy fudge the truth? Any thoughts? How, would, how might someone who fears stress and demands and loves privacy fudge the truth? What are some examples? They don't have to be personal or they can't be if you want. I see. You Go ahead. Saying you're busy, but you're actually at home watching TV. Good. That's good. Anything else? That covers it. Great. <laughs> Netflix. Yeah. Overpromising, underdelivering, or just ghosting is another one. Clever fudging is still fudging. So here's my second point. Number two. Disciples are honest. Here's what Jesus is saying. Disciples are honest. Profound stuff, I know. Disciples are honest. Quote number three. Quote number three. Beginning in 534, Jesus again used hyperbole when he instructs the people not to make any oaths. Oaths, properly understood and respectfully used, are a good thing. Jesus was saying that it is better just to make a promise and keep it and prove by your track record that you are a promise keeper worth trusting than to thoughtlessly use the powerful name of Yahweh to back up a promise that may or may not be kept. So I've been talking kind of about like irreligious ways that we... We break promises, but there is a reality, too, that um, we can use the name of God to baptize our self-directed lives. We can do that. And we can, we can say, like, I feel this. God's leading me to this without actually really praying about it, without actually seeking wise counsel. Without, we're just kind of self-directed, and then we dip it in God language. That's in line with what I think Jesus is trying to correct here. Was there another part of that quote that I didn't read? Yeah, let me finish that. Thank you. Simply put, Jesus insisted that his followers tell the truth always, not simply when they're under oath. Citizens of his kingdom are to be truth tellers, in contrast with those who play with words and twist their meaning to their own selfish ends. That's what he's dealing with here. When we do that, uh, it got me thinking about, I don't know if you guys ever did this, uh, turkey bowls during Thanksgiving. Uh, it's a football game, usually, around uh, Thanksgiving time. And uh, I grew up, uh, I lived in Puerto Rico for a long time, but I also spent many years in Orange County. And my Orange County crew, K-R-E-W, for anybody from Orange County. Great, that really landed. Yes. We were OC bros. Thank you. Fine. My OC crew, we would get together to play football, uh, you know, kind of like after high school and we were in college and stuff. We were way too old to do this stuff, but we did it. And we'd get together to play football. And one year there was a, um, like a, a downpour. Just, it was soaking wet. We went to Mission Viejo and we found a field. And uh, it was a mud bowl. It's what it ended up being. It was a mud bowl. It wasn't a turkey bowl. It was just muddy. So we played. Um, I don't like mud. So I think I kind of call in place from the sideline. Throw him a curveball. What? Get out. You don't know what you're talking about type of thing. Um, but my, my friend Pat wasn't like that. My friend Pat was, he was so into the game and he, w- he was like, tackling people, and he was getting tackled. And as you can imagine, you know, white shirt, it starts white. By the end, it's brown. 
and it looks muddy, all that stuff. That's what that morning was like for us. And I remember looking at Pat. I have a really bad memory, but I remember the most random things. I remember this. I said, Pat, you're like a bar of soap, like trying to tackle you. Not that I was, it looks like that. Other people are trying to tackle you and they can't. And what's the issue with a bar of soap? Have you ever had like a wet bar of soap? You know? The problem with it is that you're left with nothing solid to hold on to. Nothing. So it is with us when we play with our words and twist their meaning. It's like there's nothing to hold on to. We become slippery like a bar of soap. Or a snake. Following the way of the snake. In the Bible. Following the way of evil. Disciples keep their promises. Jesus wants his followers to tell the truth. I got a slide with some... This is the, the Herrick version, I think, of what Jesus is saying. He doesn't want us to play games. I think I got it on the slide. Maybe I don't. Jesus wants us to say, oh, there it is. I think what, he's, what he would say to us is no games, no loopholes to leave your way out, kind of leave an out. Uh, no technicalities, no muddying the waters, no hidden agendas or PR spin, no ghosting. This is a whole new deal, baby. <laughs> Kingdom life. It should not look like anything that the world relies on to get what it wants. We're not to adopt the sketchy sales tactics of the world, right? Some of the worst experiences of my life have been with salespeople, which by the way, sales is legitimate. Just be, you know, like I'm not, I'm not just like bashing sales. Um, but there's a, a way to sell that involves um, pushing, Manipulating, concealing, hiding. How much is it going to cost? No answer. How much is it going to cost? No answer. You know what I mean? It's like that. That kind of thing. And then later you get stuck with a bill that you're like, I have to tell my wife that I just spent this much on grass. Not a true story. Totally a true story. <laughs> so people like me, who, who are people pleasers, these salespeople love us. We are easy marks for them. Um, I say it now, it wasn't funny. It was not. It was not funny. I felt, uh, I felt dishonored, disrespected as a human. So there's that kind of pushy sales sketch stuff that happens. There's also another one that's way more sinister. It's the pretending to be your friend. But having a, another agenda that you only see later. That kind of stuff happens all the time, and it damages trust, it wrecks relationships, it destroys communities. It's ugly. It's ugly. Man, we're to have a firm grasp on reality and call them like we see them. We're to be honest about what we're doing, when and why. My third point, disciples keep their promises. This is all different ways of saying the same thing. Disciples keep their promises. In uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, get one reference in at least today, um, there's a character whose name is Gollum, or Smeagol, same person, two different kind of personalities at work, and Smeagol makes a promise to take these couple hobbits to Mount Doom to destroy the ring, the ring of power. That's ultimately, the whole thing is about this ring of power. Whoever has the ring controls Middle-earth. But the ring needs to be destroyed because no one can really control the ring. All the ring can do is possess and destroy and dominate. So these little brave hobbits, they're on their way to uh, die, effectively, if they make it. Um, and Gollum, Smeagol, promises to take them there. And what ends up happening is, uh, because Gollum, Smeagol, is of kind of two minds... There's a part of him that wants to take the hobbits to where they're going. And there's a part of him that does not. There's a part of him that wants the ring for himself. And you kind of see, there's some like, when I was a kid and I saw these movies, I was like, what is going on? Smeagol and, and Gollum talk to each other and it's sort of like, it's one person though. Um, but he is not a whole person. He's a fractured human. Or whatever. He's not a hobbit. It's 
Scott, what was he? Okay, he was off it, cool. My second lie of the morning. He was a, a class of hobbit, but that was... Whatever. There's a point to this. Um, but he's not one hobbit, he's two. He's of two minds. He's split in his allegiances and he lies. So what does he do? He basically takes, I'm like, oh, I'll take you to Mount Doom through this layer that a 10-foot spider with a three-foot um, stinger, who I've made a, I'm in cahoots with, because of course I am, is going to eat you. I'm going to eat your face. And I'm going to laugh as he eats your face. And I'm going to, never mind. That was, you told me to take you to Mount Doom, and I'm going to take you there. But was he telling the truth? Of course not. He wanted to kill them because he wanted the ring for himself. He didn't keep his promise. Why? He wasn't whole. His words and his ways were not one. And so it is with, every, with, with broken humanity. We are not whole. We write checks with our mouths that we cannot cash. Right? Um, I was recently watching, my wife Heather and I are about four episodes short of finishing The Office, which I've never done before. Four more. I think Peacock has already resubscribed, so we're in for a month. It's fine. Four more episodes. And we just hit an episode here at the end of season nine. I'll try not to include any spoilers for anybody that hasn't watched it yet. Um, did you know that The Office was a show, is, The Office was about a group of people who work in an office being filmed for a documentary? Did you know that? Yes. How often do you think about that during the nine seasons if you've watched the show? Did anybody think about it more than like a couple times? It was so easy to forget that that was always the goal. The end goal was a documentary about these people in the office. The truth would be revealed, right? There was a moment in, in season nine where they were reminded of that because they start putting trailers out on the internet. The office documentary is coming. And they're like, yeah, excited. So they realized like they were filming everything for 10 years. They're like, oh no. During those 10 years, I mean, that's what makes the show a show, that's worth watching, all kinds of stuff goes wrong, and people lie, and they cheat, and all this other stuff. But there was a moment where it was like, everything's going to come out. At the end of our lives, there's going to be a revelation of the truth about us, an account given about each person, whether you want it or not. That's, and often, just like The Office, we're not thinking about that. We're just going about our lives. Honestly, I'm usually being driven by an idol of some kind. And we just forget, one day, the truth is going to emerge. And here's the thing. If, if, if you want to distill Jesus' words down into a quick little phrase to remember for later, your reliability reveals your ruler. At the end of your life, your reliability reveals your ruler. Because he said, anything else is of thee, evil one. Anything else? So he's talking about rule, like your allegiance, your reliability, your promises, your truth-telling, and your promises reveal who your ruler is. If I was just to end there, that'd be pretty lame. Because the truth is, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't stop at five, Matthew 5, verse 37. That goes on through 28 chapters. And believe it or not, you, I didn't even think about this until preparing this message. The piece about oaths and truth-telling would become everything for one of his disciples. Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35. These are very famous words. This particular passage is when Peter, when Jesus is, is preparing his disciples for his eventual departure. So Jesus has told them, I'm going to die. I'll be raised in three days. They don't, have, they don't understand what he's saying. They don't get it. Now, Peter, actually, let's go to verse 20, Matthew 26, verses 31 to 35. 31 to 35. Do we have those? Okay, I'll just read them. 
Peter's denial is predicted. So verse 31 says this, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, tonight all of you will fall away because of me. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So he's telling them, hey, you're all going to bail on me. But I'm going to, here's my plan. Peter can't help himself. He's like, oh, no, 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 Jesus. Not me. I'll never fall away. And then Jesus says, truly, I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Yeesh. Even if I have to die with you, Peter doubled down. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. So they're all saying, they're all writing checks. They, wouldn't, they, they couldn't cash. Now, Matthew 26, here are the verses that you do have, 69 to 74. This is what happens. Jesus agonizes in the garden. His disciples are with him and he says, hey, can you please stay up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation? And what do they keep doing? dozing off. Comfort's not just a SoCal thing. Verse 69, here's what happens later after Jesus has been arrested. Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl approached him and said, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. So all the disciples have scattered. And Peter's now getting called out on it by a little girl. Verse 70, but he denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about. When he had gone out, out, out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were there, this man was with Jesus the Nazarene. So they're saying, this guy belongs to Jesus. And verse 72, again, he denied it with an oath this time. I don't know the man. So remember the oaths and truth-telling, all that stuff? Who blunders it in a key moment? Maybe Jesus' closest disciple. Certainly one of the three closest guys. I don't know the man with an oath. After a little while, those who were standing approached him and told Peter, you really are one of them, since your accent gives you away. Apparently he had a little bit of a drawl or something. It was just like, you're not from here, bro. Then he started to curse. If, if this was in Orange County, if the passion happened there. 74. Then he started to curse and to swear with 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 something. He started to swear. And he says, I don't know the man. He denied it again with an oath. After a little while, those standing there approached Peter and said, you really are, oh, I'm, I'm repeating myself now. Okay, I think you guys get the point, right? What is he doing? What did Jesus tell him to do? What did, he, what did Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount to do with his truth telling? What did he teach you not to do? What does he do? He went out, he, he figured it out. The rooster crowed. He denied him three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. Peter is an example, A, of what happens when we don't take Jesus' word seriously. He became self-confident. He became proud. He thought, I got this. I can handle it. He didn't pray, and he fell. Now, here's, why is that good news? Well, number one, we can learn how Jesus would handle us by how he handled his disciples, what does Jesus do with Peter? You don't actually find out in Matthew. Part of why they had to write John to find out what happened with Peter. Otherwise, it'd be like this, oh my gosh, what happened to him? Well, uh, if, you, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, I think the most touching and beautiful part of it, at least for me, is what happens when Jesus rises from the dead and he comes back. And he sets up like a little breakfast for the disciples, fish. Not normally what I eat for breakfast, but apparently that's what they ate for breakfast at that time. So he's cooking up some tilapia, and he looks at Peter, and he's like, here we are. Three times, right? And then he gives Peter three opportunities to confess and repent. Jesus asks him, do you love me, Peter? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Three times to tell the truth, because he lied three times, Right? And then he tells him, okay, follow me. And one day they're going to take you to where you don't want to go, Peter, which was predicting his death. How did Peter die? Does anybody know? He was crucified. How? Upside down. So here's Peter, the one who lied, who misrepresented the truth, who didn't know himself and didn't want to know himself, who didn't reach out for help, and who fell tragically and dramatically 
And at the end of his life, he got it right. He got it right. So here's what you need to know. Your repentance reveals a new ruler, Jesus. Your repentance reveals a new ruler, Jesus. You think this happened overnight for Peter? Nope. It was a lifetime of learning how to follow Jesus in every area of life, including with his words. Peter would end up getting caught again in some... some, um, It wasn't the last time that he fell. Let's just put it that way. But at the end of the day, when, when, life, when his life was on the line, when it fully, totally mattered, Peter did the right thing. He followed up his commitment to Jesus with his words. His words and his ways were one. Peter died a whole human. So if you have fallen, if you know like I'm a fallen person who lies and sins all the time, my reliability is not that awesome. My words and my ways don't always match. I have good news for you. Peter's living proof that you can experience Jesus' forgiveness and transforming grace starting today. If you turn to him, if you run to him. I want you to, and he doesn't hold a grudge against you. Like we might be like, Peter, you denied me, bro. Give him the silent treatment or just write him off, cancel him. We live in a cancel culture. Jesus doesn't do that. He restores him. And anyone can be restored. And what he's doing is bigger than just Peter. Like, this is for everybody. I want you to imagine for a moment a community of people. One community versus another. Now, imagine a community where there's clever fudging happening, or like Peter, desperate fudging, because Peter was fudging desperately uh, at the end of his, at, at, after Jesus died. Sorry, after Jesus was arrested, he was fudging. It was like desperate lies to get out of, out of trouble. So clever fudging or desperate fudging? A community of that or a community of people who are playing tricks like Gollum, word games all the time. Or there's slippery people, slippery words like bars of soap or we're crossing fingers behind our backs or we're engaging in legalese, Christianese, schemesies. Like, would you want to be a part of a community like that? Or, how about a community where people are plain spoken? Promise keeping, predictable. They're totally predictable. They're frank and they follow through. Like, what do you want? Community of people whose words and ways are one and there's wholeness. What do you think the effect of that would be in our world? Um, I've, I've been listening to... I've been listening to... Um, a lot of 80s music lately. And I discovered a band called Television. Any, anybody ever heard of them? Nobody. Okay. Well, homework. Uh, television. As I was, I put together playlists for our GC to keep things fun and whatever. So Television came up. And I realized, like, oh my gosh, I know this sound. This sound is... I love this sound, I'm for this, I'm all about this. This reminds me of something. And then I realized like, oh, the strokes sound like this. Oh, Interpol sounds like this. All these bands that I know and love sound like this. Television is the the uniter of them all. Now, what it's done for me is, because I know the strokes and Interpol and these other bands that came much later, I'm receiving television, the band, with like a warmth, a musical warmth and appreciation and openness that usually takes a lot longer to get to. In fact, if I were a musician, I might want to model my music on theirs. But alas, I'm not a musician. But why am I bringing this up? What's my point? I want you to imagine for a minute uh, people in your life, maybe in your workplace, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your school or wherever, on your sports team, people in your life that know you and that see the way that you operate with honesty, with truth-telling, with promise-keeping, 
that you're a predictable person. That doesn't mean that you're a boring person, but you're just predictable. Like when you say something, you mean it. And they know that. And what if they get to know different Christians and they're all the same? Not that they sound the same or look the same. They don't sound the same. They don't look the same, but they are, their ways are consistent. There is like a, a similarity to it. What would that do to a person? As they start to ask questions, they get to know, oh, what links them together is Jesus. What links them together is Jesus. Wouldn't that create like a warmth and an openness and an appreciation for him? Just like I'm like loving television. Not that it's the greatest band in the world, but I'm like, oh, I know this. This is familiar. This is, this is good. What if the church was that kind of people? What if? What if people got a taste of Jesus, not because you're in their face with apologetics, apologetics isn't bad, but what if they got to see what you're, they got to see Jesus essentially shaping you and influencing you. And they're like, who's influencing you? This is a fun new thing that I'm discovering as I get older. I like to figure out who my people that influence me read, who the bands I like listen to, right? Now that I'm middle-aged, this is a thing. Maybe you've gone through this before. Maybe you haven't. That's cool. But Jesus, who do you want influencing you? Your family of origin, the culture, or Jesus? It's compelling stuff. I'm going to call the band up. I'm going to call the band up. And you guys can stand if you're able. Man, like in light of what we talked about this morning, think about your life. Think about your words. Think about like your gut reactions to situations. Imagine if you paid attention to them to see what you would learn about yourself. How often it's like fear, worry that's driving our words. I, I, I gotta confess, I did that this week and what I, what I saw, I didn't love. <laughs> I had to apologize to people multiple times this week. I had to tell someone, I'm sorry I didn't follow through on our commitment. Will you forgive me? Because I realized my words weren't as reliable as I thought, as I've considered Jesus's words and instruction to me. So I just want to ask you a question, like as a brother, as, as a fellow disciple, man, is there anything that you need to confess? Any unreliability, any broken promises, anything you need to confess? On the other side of that, is there anything you need to change? Jesus is interested in reforming us into his image to make us like him. Anything you need to confess, anything you need to change. And for a lot of us too, I, I wanna put this in front of you. Is there anything that you need to bring to Jesus? Any ways in which you have felt beat up by people's lies? Any ways in which you have been wounded by people in your life, broken human beings, who did not follow the way of Jesus, maybe in how they treated you. you need something, do you need to confess anything? Do you need to change anything? Or do you need to bring anything to him? What Peter learned is that Jesus is gracious. And he loves to take broken people who don't know themselves very well and turn them into whole people whose words and ways are one. So let's pray before we go in this song. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Thank you for this opportunity to, to go back to the original intent and design of your world. This was your plan all along, just to have a people who are radically committed to truth-telling and promise-keeping. Would you help us to identify anything that would get in the way and to begin to work on it? Pray that we'd be a community that, where confession is common, where repentance is a way of life, where we apologize regularly and, and are seeking to change so that we can represent you well. You make us truthful, promise-keeping, plain-spoken, predictable people. <laughs> predictable in that you, what we say is our word and we'll do it. God, we love you and we thank you. To your sons and we pray, amen. 
As we, as we go into, into a time of singing, I just want to remind you of one important thing. Jesus made promises and he kept them all. He made promises and he kept every last one of them. And you know where it took him? To the cross. Jesus loved us so much and he was so committed to us that he went to his own death for you and me to break the power of sin over us, to make us a whole people, to make us one. People who are, whose words and ways are one. So I just want you to know like there's no fear, there's no condemnation. Like you can just come to him. There's nothing that you've done, nothing that you have, maybe even something that you've hidden. He knows it. You can bring it to him. And he is a forgiving, gracious king whose love led him to the cross. And Peter is proof that his love for you can lead you to the cross too. No matter where you're at today, you don't have to stay there. So let's sing, let's sing and let's praise him, promise keeper. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die. Lie, right? No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you, that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leagues together and made coverings for themselves. It's a way of hiding. It continues. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? I have this overwhelming kind of pastoral sense that some of us in the room, your relationship with God in this season of your life, maybe it's a, a thing today, or maybe it's been happening for a while, your relationship with God feels distant. Like it feels like something's not totally right. And as Herrick was preaching and praying, I, I really feel like there's some of us in the room that you're hiding. And how do you know? Maybe because your yeses aren't yes and your noes aren't noes. There's this inconsistency. Like Herrick talked about this duality of your personhood. And I believe what God wants to do is I believe he wants to break the power of sin and selfishness and lies. All sin, all sin at the root is believing a lie about God. We just read about it. And I believe God, for some of us in the room, some of you are hiding, your relationship with God isn't as strong as you want it to be or he wants it to be. And the reason is because there's lies, there's untruths that you're believing. And how do you know? Lies and untruths start to make their way out of you in really subtle ways that don't feel like they're that big of a deal, but they reveal some things to us. They reveal whose rule you're operating under. Jesus died to purchase you from death to purchase you from the rule of Satan and the rule of self. There's trusted men and women off to the side here with like prayer landers. They want to pray for you. Um, but before they do, you down to share? EJ is going to share something that I think is not just what God was doing in her, but what I believe God wants to do in somebody this morning. Let him, let him hear it. So, Herrick, when you talked about the relative that was like family, taking care of family, but it ended up being twisted. Um, I, 
had an experience this morning that was the opposite of that. And being here and serving on worship is something that is very meaningful to me and many of us in the room. But I had a moment because of my past experiences where I just started weeping and couldn't stop crying. <laughs> and my brothers up here, they stopped all of the preparation and everything that we were doing to get ready for this morning and just prayed over me. And it was like a good 20 minutes of just everything stopped. And it felt like family taking care of family, but in the right way. And I just wanted to encourage anybody in here that is struggling or maybe you don't feel that sense of family or you're confused about it. You're in a safe space and our pastors, our brothers, our sisters are here for you, the people in the back to pray. Don't let your fear and your hiding stop you from getting what God has for you and that connection that he wants all of us to have. So I just wanted to encourage you guys with that this morning. God's always doing stuff. And so hear me. If you're starting to, the spirit of God is enlightening your heart and mind as some of the ways that you might be believing untruths. You might be recognizing untruths in your life, whether it's in your, your thought life, whether it's things that are coming out of your mouth, embellishments even. Why, why? I just like had a conversation with Eric and I was like embellishing the whole time. Why was I doing that? Like, Let God minister to your heart. Let him provide freedom to you. How's he going to do it? Typically, he uses his hands and his feet. That's his church. So we have about 10, eh, we have another time for maybe one more song. But there's trusted women, men and women off to the side that would love to minister to you. Um, and just to make it less awkward, that's every single person in the room. It really just boils down to who wants to receive Jesus in this moment, honestly, okay? That's available. They're gonna, they're gonna serve us for a little bit longer then I'll come up and close us, okay, guys? Love you very much. Please let the Spirit of God lead you in how he might respond, what he has for you specifically as an individual, okay? Let me pray for us, huh? Father, I pray for every heart and soul in this room that the reality of the good news, the gospel of Jesus, is available to all of us. And it frees us from shame, it frees us from guilt, it frees us from condemnation for being carriers of untruth. for participating with Satan in his schemes to fill the earth with untruth. So I thank you for your redeeming power, Jesus, in all of us. I thank you that you literally clothe us in your righteousness. God, I thank you that the story didn't end with Adam and Eve blowing it. You made a promise. You made a promise to crush the enemy, the deceiver, through our Messiah, through our Savior, through the one who would come and live in our place and die in our place. So Lord, I pray that anybody in this room who's feeling any ounce of condemnation would receive your gospel fresh, would receive it new, and that as a result, you really would, like it would transform us. It would make us different. It would make us want different things, desire different things that it would make us people whose words and ways are one instead of divided. Make us whole people like Herrick prayed about or like he preached about. That's our prayer. Make us whole people, restored, renewed. Would you do that work in us? Not, as, not just as isolated individuals, but as a community of people who because of our trust in you can be vulnerable with each other but we don't have to hide. We don't have to believe the lie that keeps us isolated and keeps us hidden. We get to trust in the truth, the truth of who you are, what you've done, and the freedom that you've purchased for us through your blood. 
We love you, Jesus. We're thankful that you keep every single one of your promises to us and for us. And all God's people said, amen. All right, friends. Wow, right at noon. That is just efficiency if I've ever seen it. Uh, listen, you guys can take a seat if you'd want. Uh, we've got to pick up the kids around noon, so if you could make your way there. If you have children, uh, there's still a handful of people I, th- I can see getting prayer and stuff. If you need to get prayer this morning, please don't leave without that. But grab your kiddos if you could. Thank you, Ben, for loving us and serving us. Thank you, Herrick. That was profound. Enjoy your Sunday. Know that you're loved, okay?